Hey, good morning. What's going on? This is Andy Kelly, Water's Edge Church, and uh, today is Pentecost. Pentecost celebrates the gift of the Holy Spirit given to the church, and uh, it's also a reminder that God is with us. Now, if you joined us in the gathering, you realize that we took communion together before the message, and that was led by our, our worship leaders, both Alicia Coleman and Greg Gunn, and it's good to be led by our quote lay leaders it's a reminder that the holy spirit reigns in us that each of us are chosen people as peter writes we are a holy nation a royal priesthood and uh, that is the gift of the holy spirit also good to take communion together if you're listening i'd encourage you to take communion this week it is called our daily bread it's not birthday cake as one of my friends notes and uh, yeah, we are Water's Edge Church. We exist to love God and love those whom God loves. That means we exist as the great commandment Jesus confirmed is to love God and love others. And our hope is with each and every gathering, if you're listening today, that you would take a next step with Jesus. Each person here would take a next step with Jesus. So with that, let's talk about last week, May 21st, next step. Larry preached a compelling message about the injustice among us, the injustice of the poor, really the injustice of greed over the poor, the injustice of power or domination over the oppressed, the injustice of violence, which leaves many victimized and violated, and finally the injustice of exclusion, which thereby creates outsiders. And so the, the next step we had was, what injustice might be God inviting you to engage in combating in your personal life and or in your community? What injustice may be God inviting you to engage in to combat both in your personal life and in your community? If you haven't considered that, please consider it. We've talked about it at our connection dinner this week, at our group this week. But what injustice is God inviting you to participate in? Ah, that's not the way to say it. What injustice is God inviting you to combat? Because the hope is, as Hebrew 10 says, is that we would spur each other into love and good deeds not giving up meeting together as some in the habit of doing but encouraging one another uh, until the day of the Lord's coming the day of the Lord we have three more weeks in James and he actually mentions the day of the Lord but as I get into James and as I read the passage today I'm reminded of a phrase that uh, many of mentors and previous pastors have told me as I seek uh, to shepherd others in God's word. Uh, there's a phrase, and this is the phrase, that one must never underestimate the blood in the pews. Never underestimate the blood in the pews. This is the battle that we are all fighting. It's a bit of a graphic illustration or analogy, but the connotation is that each person is carrying a load or a weight. Each person has a unique pain or loss a weight of sin in their life or even just the weight of waiting for something in and through their lives that can seemingly weigh her or him down i mean there are some who are listening to this and those who are in our congregation that are in a tremendously difficult season and as we conclude this next three weeks it seems james as harsh as he seems as terse as he may be he seems to soften a bit as the letter concludes. Even seems like he's addressing someone different than 
those whom he was addressing last week. In James 5.1, we read last week, he writes, Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that's coming upon you. Then we have our passage this week, James 5.7, which includes somewhat of a pivot. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. Beginning of the chapter is addressed to you rich people. This is now addressed to brothers and sisters. Be patient. If last week was a warning to those who might live at the expense of others, this week is an instruction to those who are being taxed by others or by a difficult season or circumstance. Tough times, be patient. Be patient, brothers and sisters. Now when you hear that phrase, be patient, it can feel a bit patronizing. Like the advice that we throw one another from here to there. You just chill out, be patient, calm down, be patient, relax. It is what it is. Don't cry over spilled milk. Now, given how terse James has been throughout this general letter, it can be tempting to relegate this statement to be patient to somewhat of a fixer grumpy grandpa who seems to throw advice uh, in order to make other people's problems and other people go away. Be patient. Be patient. Now, what I want to make clear is that this is not throwaway device. Patience is actually a gift. It's a gift to be received and a gift to be given, a lot like love. Patience, uh, in many ways, uh, is something we receive from God, actually in every way. God's patient with me, and therefore, because of God's patience, I can learn patience, to be patient with God, to be patient with myself, of course, with others, and with life. Mark 14, 36, it's, it's one to memorize, where Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's praying three times, and in his prayer, he says, Abba, which is a very tender way to address God. It's Dad, Dad, everything is possible with you. Everything. Please take this cup away from me. The cup being the cross that's coming. And then whatever happens between him saying, please take this cup from me. There's a moment where he says, yet not what I will, but what you will, your will be done. God, take this cup from me. Mark 14, 36 has its own three-point sermon. Daddy, I trust you. I love you. Everything's possible with you. The first point you would say is that God is loving, he's our father, and God is powerful, he can do anything. The second point would be naming our desires. I don't want to be here right now. Please take this cup away from me. I don't want to deal with this cup. But finally, through that process of honesty, and even anger, possibly even at God, we say, not what I will, but what you will. We are surrendered. And part of being surrendered means being patient. Being patient. Sometimes the only thing we have is patience. Sometimes that's the only thing we got. And I, I, I think that can almost sound like blasphemy. 
because God gives us so much. I mean, we have all of the fruit of the Spirit ready available to us. The fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, for sure, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Aren't all the fruits of the Spirit readily available to us? Yes. Absolutely. However, when it comes to my circumstances and even my lived experiences, we may not have a sense, or at least an experience, as I mentioned, of God's love or God's joy or joy in the life that God has us in for that matter. We certainly may not be experiencing peace. The outside may be calm, but the inside may be a storm of chaos and anxiety and even fear. And as it goes with the rest and so forth, with generosity, faithfulness, kindness, etc. And patience can and must be our posture to wait for that experience. We may not be experiencing love, but patience says, I can wait with you, God. I can wait for your joy, your peace, your gentleness, while at the same time trusting it's there. Patience says, I may not be experiencing it, but I'm going to wait. And patience is anchoring. In the great love chapter of 1 Corinthians, in the long list of Paul exegeting love, and I'm sure you've heard it in a wedding or 20, Paul writes the very first thing, that love is patient. Before he says love is kind, it doesn't envy, it does not boast, it's not controlling, he says love is patient. It's very significant. So I think, what, it, what is patience? Great question, what is patience? Well, I have one, really two definitions of patience. Patience simply is unhurried waiting. Patience is unhurried waiting. When we consider the best things in life, they almost certainly take time. And uncoincidentally, the best things in life can also be the most difficult things in life. Sometimes the even most miserable aspects of life. And I'm not gonna unpack that mystery other than to say that patience is still vital at the point of when we get, quote, what we want. Patience is unhurried waiting. Well, what does it mean to be unhurried? What well, means we're open and expectant, but we're also surrendered. When we're impatient, we tend to scramble, we rush, we strive, which isn't helpful for us or anyone else. When we're impatient, we say, I want my will to be done now. Whereas patience says, God, your will be done in your timing. True patience is unhurried because trust anchors us to God. We trust you, God. We are expectant because we trust what God has done. And we're also surrendered because we trust God's timing. Trust fuels patience. Now, we can't be confused here because patience isn't passive. It isn't passive. It isn't just being completely still, though some of us can use some stillness in our lives. Patience also means that we live. And this brings us to our, our second definition of patience. Patience means living while waiting and waiting while trusting. Patience is unhurried waiting and all patience is also living while you wait and waiting while you trust. Now, if you know anything about mathematics, there's a... Uh, mathematical transitive property of equality where it says if x equals y and y equals z then x equals z and if living 
has a correlation to waiting and waiting has a correlation to trusting, then living has a correlation to trusting, which makes sense. You could say patience is just living while trusting, but I think it's validating to put those words waiting in there because some of us are waiting, but the invitation is to live the same. And, And whatever load you're carrying, whatever weight you have, including the weight of waiting, God's invitation to us as well as challenge, is to live while we wait. And that living actually frees us up to be a bit more unhurried. It frees us to be a little bit more present. So what are some of the ways that we can live patiently? What are some of the ways, practical handholds, that we can live patiently? That's what James provides us here at the near closing of his letter. And as we read this letter, it can feel like he's just kind of throwing a bunch of statements at us. In fact, when you read a lot of like New Testament, ancient Greco-Roman epistles, it can feel like at the end of it, they kind of throw a lot of things in that can feel random and disconnected as if they're throwing in everything, including the kitchen sink. Hey, do this, do that, do that. Don't forget this. How about that? But they are interconnected. There's an interconnection here that's vital for us to understand what it means to be patient, which is why he brings up the word patient and perseverance in this letter. So with that, we're going to read the scripture, James 5, verses 7 through 11, with the question in mind, what are some practical ways to live patiently, to to unhurriedly wait, to live while waiting and waiting while trusting? This is where we read, James 5, verse 7. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crops, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you'll be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, As an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. That's God's word for us. Now, as I said earlier, this is addressed to those who are suffering. And in ancient times, this was either the overtaxed and barely getting by working class or the completely impoverished class just below them. So what are they waiting for, these believers who are living in such difficult times under an oppressive regimes? Well, they're waiting for Jesus' return, the day of the Lord, which I mentioned earlier in Hebrews 10 and what, if you're with us, Greg read about in Amos 9. Jesus' return. And in the Christian faith, the worldview, we believe that the Son of God, the second Uh, being in the Trinity, came in what we call the Incarnation, really the second person in the Trinity. God is one being, three persons. Mystery. Jesus came in what we call the Incarnation over 2,000 years ago, and and though the Son of God is God, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus Messiah, lived this fully perfect life, this fully human life, which was fully dependent on God the Father, the first person in the Trinity. And he was born, lived, he waited, he discipled, he waited, he died and waited, rose and waited, 
ascended and waited and gave the gift of the Holy Spirit, which was a promise as well as a deposit that he would one day return to make all things new. This return is this day of the Lord, this coming, which is the Greek parousia. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. Christ will come again to right all wrongs. The day the Lord comes, and when those who said yes to Jesus, Jesus will know that there'll be enough, that there are enough, and that there will be enough for all. Enough for each person, enough wine for each person to celebrate the God who is and who has come. The communion we share today, as well as the gift of the Holy Spirit we celebrate today, is, is a foretaste of things to come. It's, it's us in a posture of unhurried waiting. At the same time, unparadoxically or uncoincidentally and paradoxically maybe, they are the means by which we live now. That we live while we're waiting and, and waiting while trusting that the Lord will come again. And this idea of living, it's what James talks about in this passage about a farmer. It's our first point as we consider what are some ways that we can live patiently. The first point today is we ask that question, what are some ways we can live patiently is that we one, plant seeds of life today. We plant seeds of life today in our day to day. It's an, I'm an intuitive thinker, so let me make the implicit explicit. It means doing things that are life-giving now, even if you're not experiencing life from it as you wait. Do things that are life-giving now, even if you're not experiencing life from it as we wait. James writes, see how the farmer learns. I'm sorry, see how the farmer waits for the land to yield his valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn as spring comes. Now, this statement is really about God's activity in history, where he's planting seeds of life throughout all different areas and all different generations uh, throughout history, which is his story. But we are called to imitate the Father and plant seeds of life, to do things that are life-giving for us and for others in our story. There are times when we are waiting and it feels like we're not living. There are times when we're suffering and we want to do nothing. These are times where it is crucial to plant seeds of life, to sow seeds in different areas. It's crucial to eat, crucial to sleep for eight or nine hours a night, but not 12 to 13. It's crucial to move our bodies. It's crucial to call a friend and share with them the exact same thing you shared with them before. To ask a friend for prayer and to pray for one another. It's crucial to talk to your bipolar sister and just listen to her on and on. It's crucial to take out your cousin who struggles with alcoholism. It's, it's crucial to keep working and then find a worthy place to give. It's crucial to keep making love to your spouse. It's crucial to try a new recipe and then give it to a neighbor or just simply to eat a good meal. It's crucial to sing out loud, to go to the ocean, to let the water hit our toes, to skip some stones. It's crucial to play with Legos. It's crucial to sit in silence and to pray and to breathe. It's crucial to breathe in God's love and then breathe out, Lord, I am enough. It's crucial to breathe in God's love and then breathe out, I'm waiting for you, Lord. It's crucial to breathe in God's love and exhale, I'm angry with you, God. But to also breathe in God's love again. It's crucial to put stucco on a home in Tijuana 
It's crucial to courageously exclaim to a barista, the seed of life, hey, you're deeply loved by an unimaginable force. You may call that force the universe. I call that force Jesus. It's crucial to play pretend in the woods with or without your kids to read the Bible. Even if after reading the Bible, you're like, I don't remember anything about that. There are days I'll read the Bible and be like, I don't know what that was about. I mean, I could think about it. It's crucial to take communion in your home and maybe to have a glass of wine with Jesus. It's crucial to smile, to cry, to write, to laugh, to weep, to breathe, and then breathe deeply again. Now, is this grandpa coming again with his advice? Maybe. But perhaps it's the farmer, the father, who is a farmer, is inviting you to come into his field, take off your shoes, to feel the wind upon your face, and to sow some seeds of life. So a very important question I'm asking is, what are some life-giving practices that you've lost in this season of waiting? What are some life-giving practices, to preface it positively, that you can rediscover in this season of waiting or suffering? Now, as we think about the message that I'm giving now and what we heard last week, we can very easily ask, how do these conflate together? Is it all about them? Is it all about me? And, and I mentioned earlier that it seems that this message uh, last week was given to so, a certain people, and then this message is given to another certain people. The rich people versus the brothers and sisters who are suffering. And I think I had a lot that I wrote down here. What I want us to write, no, is like most of us are well off. Uh, and a lot of us are struggling. It isn't always a uh, mutually exclusive conversation. I do think it's necessary for those who are well off to hear this truth. What is one seed you can sow in the direction of those who are either poor, oppressed, violated, or excluded? I can't. I gave a list there, and that list was compelling, and sure, it did pay nod to uh, those who, who may be hurting, but I think for all of us, and I'm not a fan of like checking off the box Christianity, but sometimes we just need to think through, hey, how in my life am I sowing a seed toward the marginalized? How am I doing that? And if I'm not doing it, why or why not? Why am I not exercising God's love for me? Is there something between you and me, God, that does that I don't want to do this for whatever reason. And in our group the other night, we were praying about this. We were praying about it, and, and it can be an overwhelming conversation. There's so much need. And then conversely, it can be this confusing conversation where we feel like, man, we live in a place where everybody has enough. If we were to serve the poor, is it some type of paternalism where we're, we're above them serving them, which is a helpful tension to consider but sometimes we get in this mentality with, for example, hey, do I give money to this person who's transient or experiencing homelessness? What are they going to do with that money? It's like, yeah, I get that tension. But Jesus served people. I mean, there's one account where he healed 10 people, 10 lepers, and only one came back. Who knew where the other nine went to? In the end, we... I liked what Lita said the other night. She's like, just be aware of what God places directly in front of you. 
God intentionally places in front of you and, and also just do something. Sow a seed, do something. It will be life-giving. If you go and serve the poor, I promise you, it gives you perspective and it's life-giving. Moreover, when the suffering serves, the world may not be any closer to God. That's my belief, that when we who are suffering and waiting for something in our own lives or in our family's lives or even our own group or church, when we serve in the midst of suffering and waiting, the world may be no closer to God. We may be no closer to God. So what are some ways to live patiently? We plant seeds of life in our day-to-day. That is the first point. The second one is a means by which we practice patience, is that we pause before we speak. One way that we live patiently is to pause before we speak. James says in verse 8, you too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. That standing firm is not the same as standing still, as, as much as it is standing strong, that as many translations state that we be patient and we strengthen our hearts. And then James transitions, and there's a connection here, that we don't grumble against one another. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. The God sees us when we grumble. When we grumble against those we love, in some way we're grumbling against God. And so what I say that is we must pause before we speak and practice patience with our own words. Practice mercy with our words and patience in order to consider if the words are one, true, and if they're life-giving or if they're life-taking. My words, what I'm going to speak right now to those around us, going to be life-giving or life-taking. Don't grumble against one another. The truth is, we can grumble against one another. It's a significant temptation that accompanies the pressure of difficult circumstances. When we're in seasons of waiting and suffering, we tend to grumble against one another. We often take out the frustrations of our difficult day or seasons or even years with our close friends and family members, grumbling, complaining, condemning. It could be an initial impulse. When we're squeezed by seasons of waiting and suffering, we tend to leak. I mean, my wife and I, we've been married 13 years, great time, I love her to death so much. But there are times when we are stressed, and our stress can create these unproven narratives about one another where our temptation is to criticize one another. And, and what we're learning in this season is instead of these impulsive criticisms or accusations, we, we want to ask edifying questions. Hey, you left your clothes on the floor. Help me understand that. <laughs> Help me understand what's going on with your day. You okay? Can I serve you in some way? Oh yeah, I did leave that on the floor. Yeah, this is what's going on with me. I, I, I now see that. I wish I didn't do that. I'm sorry. Rather than throw grenades of criticisms, we can ask edifying questions. As James already stated, be slow to speak, slow to anger, and quick to listen. Let's be patient with our words to see if they're life-giving or not. Second point, quick point, but helpful point. Third point is this. What are some ways, some handholds, maybe even some uh, guidance here to live patiently? We plant seeds of life. We pause before we speak. 
And then this may seem like it's coming out of nowhere, but it is where the gold is, particularly when we're waiting, is that we pursue our elders. We pursue those who've gone before us. Pursue our elders among us. James concludes, brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord has finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. As I said earlier, I'm going to read that again. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. You've got to remember, God is patient with us as we seek to be patient with others. God is patient with our impatience. i got to practice patience with this recording. Oh my goodness, there's a lot of interruptions. Sorry about that. A lot going on, but it's okay. Uh, James calls to look upon the prophets of old and learn from their ways of seeing how the heavenly dimension intersects with our ordinarily earthly realities. Uh, yeah, we should definitely read the prophets in scripture. It's a really helpful and difficult exercise. I mean, it's even practicing patience when you read it. I mean, Amos, goodness, we read that in Lent and that was difficult. And, and I appreciate how the prophets are able to see so vividly what God's doing. But we also, or yet we also, have, have, have those among us who've walked the earth, our elders, who, who've just seen more than we have, who've trusted God longer than we have. Women and men who indeed have sometimes a lot of advice for us, but also know that they don't have all the answers because they've lived through circumstances that are simply unanswerable. Our elders have had their own seasons of waiting and suffering and yet have trusted God along the way. We should look upon them, learn from them, hear their stories. And then James brings up uh, one prophet, not sure if it's a prophet, but it is according to scripture, so it must be, but this idea of Job. And I'm not going to preach a sermon about the book of Job, though it is one of the most helpful and earliest scriptures in writing. It's very validating. Uh, I'll share one exegesis that was given to me from a book that I'm reading right now from Anne Lamott. It's called uh, Help, Thanks, and Wow. These are the three essential prayers. She thoughtfully writes the following, that human lives are hard, and even those of health and privilege, and don't make sense. This is the message of the book of Job. Any snappy explanation of suffering you come up with will always be horse poop. She writes it differently, but it'll always be horse poop. God tells Job, who wants an explanation for all his troubles, you wouldn't understand. I, I love that exegesis. I love that explanation. After some bitter grumbling and complaining and self-righteous proclamation on behalf of Job, in the end, Job who shares his own desires, his own wants, and his own ways, trusts God. He, he never abandoned his faith. And we have those among us, prophets, elders, in our midst, those who have gone before us and walked through hell and back and discovered very little reason for it and came out with their arms still hanging around Jesus' shoulders. And I say, may we listen to their stories and learn as well as we wait and even suffer. Look around. There are people in your life 
that are God's grace to you in this season. Now, as, as I close this message, I want to state two things. That if you're in an immediate season of grieving, perhaps you've had a devastating loss, there are aspects of this message that potentially matter and make sense, but that's really another conversation that must be filled with its own tender care, a lot of listening and validation. I wouldn't say this message directly correlates to a, a season right now, particularly in the first year of grief of devastating loss. I was just talking to my buddy today who lost his dad. I wouldn't preach this message to him. Maybe I should have said that on the front end. I also want to say that, again, God is patient with us. He's full of compassion and mercy. He's waiting for us to take one step to sow one seed. And sometimes we can feel like, man, our lives are not in alignment with God. I heard that phrase this week. But the truth is, God is always in alignment with us. And at the same time, seeking to draw us to new ground, to sow seeds of life and give life. So with that, we have some next steps. The next steps for you is to place your feet in the ocean. One way is to join us in our gathering next week. Um, we'll be meeting by the beach, which I'm excited about, to pray for one another, to share a bit about our own lives, pray for our city. And if you want to part B of that next step, maybe if you want to go to the beach beforehand, place your feet in the ocean, maybe with an older prophet, an older elder, take somebody out for a walk. Next step would be pray this dangerous prayer. Lord, I'm going to give consent to you for my next challenge, for our next challenge. Lord, I want to give consent to you for our next challenge. Then finally, plant one seed that cultivates justice for the poor, oppressed, violated, and excluded. That's it. So let's pray. Lord, thank you that you're with us, you love us, that you wait with us, that you're the God of waiting, that history shows that. That even you had to wait hours before your cross. You had to wait hours on the cross. You waited a day and a half to rise. You're the God who waits. And so God, help us to be patient, to be unhurried, to be surrendered, to speak our desires, even our anger with you or against you, so that we can come to the place after some time of saying your will be done. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.